0: American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. This is Due South on WUNC. Hello and happy December. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We're all ready for the North Carolina News Roundup on this Friday morning. As a programming reminder, it's the International News Roundup at 11, the Domestic News Roundup at noon. Embodied comes your way at 1 p.m. before Science Friday at two, lots to get to. Uh, as it was another bustling week in North Carolina news and politics. We'll tell you about our panelists in a moment.
1: We wanted to demonstrate to the state of North Carolina that community partners and organizations that have been advocating for expansion for the last decade are ready.
2: This is something that will create lasting trauma for both the family and our and our kids and our staff members, and so. They'll be there unlimited um, until, as needed, until every child and every adult that needs help um, gets that help that they need.
1: One new law increases the penalties for damaging or destroying utility infrastructure like electrical substations. That proposal was introduced after someone shot up two substations in Moore County a year ago Sunday. I generally think it's unwise to put any credence in an anonymous poll. Reich is the third. Panthers head coach owner David Tepper has fired since he bought the team.
0: Just a sampling of what we hope to get to here in the next hour or so. There uh, is an anniversary in Moore County pertaining to that substation being shot at and shot out a year ago. Another firing down in football country in Charlotte. Uh, And primary politics in Rockingham County could powerful Senate leader Phil Berger be in trouble come next March. Here to help us dissect and analyze much of that and more are Colin Campbell, WNC Capital Bureau Chief, Luciana Perez Uribe, politics reporter at the News and Observer, Sarah Kruger, investigative reporter at WRAL, and Jason DeBruin, health reporter at WNC. Hello there. Nice to see you all. Let's start with Medicaid, a major story. And as of today, North Carolina joins 39 other states in expanding the hybrid federal and state health care program that provides coverage to people living with Low incomes and as well uh, to some with disabilities. Friendly reminder Medicaid, not Medicare, that is the strictly federal health care program for people over the age of 65. Let's start with the people, Colin. How many more people are now uh, eligible for coverage?
1: We're looking at about 600,000 new people, uh, a good chunk of them coming on automatically because of a program they've already signed up for. The rest will have to go through an application process um, as this gets underway, Uh, but a pretty big change. Uh, in how many people are going to be eligible for Medicaid in North Carolina. This is a
0: decade-long fight. This has carried on a, a long you-know-what time. Jason, why now? Why? Well, is why? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny even to
3: think about. There's some reminder that like this was actually tied to the Affordable Care Act, like Obamacare. I mean, that's how old we're talking about here. And Republican states or states with the Republican legislatures um, – mostly because they opposed the Affordable Care Act, they have opposed the Obama administration, they wanted effectively nothing to do with it. And so there was a Supreme Court case where um, the uh, states were allowed to reject Medicaid expansion. And so North Carolina was one of the states that did not expand Medicaid. Fast forward 10 years, there were added incentives that were provided. There's the federal government said they were going to pay more money. There's basically, it, it. the deal became basically too good to ignore. And so Phil Berger, um, who's one of, one of, if not the most powerful person, uh, political person in the state, um, this year sort of looked at everything and decided this is actually a pretty good deal for North Carolina. And even though he had opposed it for so many years, decided that this year was the right year to do it. And so sort of got most Republicans on board and expanded the program this year.
1: It usually seemed like this was a no go for so long. If you'd asked me two or three years ago would Medicaid be expansion would be having this conversation now on December 1st, 2023, I would have said, Oh, well, yeah, if uh, Democrats took control of the legislature, sure, that would happen. Um, I think if you told me it would happen under a Republican veto proof majority, I might've laughed at you because there were so many political negotiations that went nowhere between governor Roy Cooper and the Republican legislature for the last few years. But really, I think that uh, signing bonus money that Jason mentioned, Mm -hmm. plus the uh, political reality, the affordable care act is not going anywhere. There've been attempts to repeal it and, under different machinations of Congress, different variations, nothing's happened. So here we are. It seems pretty permanent. Dozens and dozens of attempts, I should note, uh, to to
0: roll the Affordable Care Act back. Now, Medicaid expansion, just for a little bit of context, in other parts of the country, has helped to bring down some health care costs. It has reduced the costs in emergency departments, uh, and it has pulled, to the extent we want to, you know, use that as a a driving uh, note here, it has pulled – positively uh, among people in rural swaths of the country, uh, among among conservative people, not necessarily elected officials. But uh, there has really there hasn't been a ton of widespread opposition to Medicaid expansion, but there has been political opposition here uh, for a long time. Luciana, talk to me about success. What does it look like in this rollout phase and what kind of hurdles still remain as we really begin? Like this is an important note. Okay, expansion is now live here in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. but there's still a long way to go.
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is going to be that people know about this program and that it's upcoming. So I spoke with DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, and they've been kind of working across communities to reach organizations and just have these organizations that are trusted speak with the people in their um, counties in these rural areas. And so it's going to depend on that, on people knowing what it's about, what it means, and then signing up and you know taking those steps which can seem um, just kind of maybe difficult at times but um, I think once you got that information it's um, it can be done so
3: yeah, but there really is this massive outreach effort right I mean I'm thinking about just the North Carolina Justice Center sent out a press release yesterday <laughs> the day before they've got more than two dozen events just today and tomorrow another dozen or more events next week. I mean they're really trying to get out into rural communities. Uh, as you mentioned, sort of these faith leaders, these trusted community leaders to get the word out to people. Look, the reality is not everybody listens to WNC or reads the News and Observer, right? And so not everybody knows that Medicaid even has expanded, let alone that they might qualify for it. Mm-hmm. So getting the word out to people is is gonna be probably the the big Herculean task, I mm-hmm. think, over the next few months. I, I, it's maybe worth coming back to what Colin said. There are 300,000 people that are more or less enroll, enrolled automatically. This is a group of people who have a very tr- slimmed down, narrow form of Medicaid? We can get into that if you want, but basically it covers family planning services. They're already enrolled with the state, and so going, f- you know, they, the state has all their information. Correct. DSS has all their information. So getting them from a very slimmed down version to a full version, maybe a little bit trickier than just flicking a switch, but but not much trickier.
0: So that's half right there. So sure. it, I mean, in fairness, that's a pretty big step right out the gate. So already prior to today, prior to December, there were more than two million people on the Medicaid rolls in North Carolina. This is a state of about 10 and a half million people. So roughly 20 percent of North Carolinians were already on Medicaid, as Jason points out. Half of the 600,000 who are now eligible automatically come on to the rolls. These are these are significant numbers. There are still some, some looming hurdles, too, that I think of immediately are transportation limitations for people living in low income, in rural swaths of the state. Uh, and that combined with some health deserts, uh, how— How does someone who doesn't have a car, how does someone who is pregnant get to a doctor if there's no OBGYN within 40 or 45 minutes and they have a job they can't take time off of? So these are just some of the hurdles. Talk to us. uh, Expound there. It's, It's a great point.
3: And this is actually one of the reasons why rural providers are so excited about Medicaid expansion, because Medicaid does cover some transportation costs. So where people who don't have any health insurance... Maybe you can get uncompensated or charity care at a doctor's office. If they can't get there, that presents exactly the problem you're mentioning. Now that they're on Medicaid, they can get some help in in getting even, say, a medical transport, say, people who have mobility issues. Mm-hmm. They can they can uh, get a ride in something that's about like an ambulance to go to the hospital, to go to their doctor. And so some of those transportation limitations are mitigated exactly because of Medicaid expansion. Not all of them, of course, but at least some.
1: And then there's the pressure on the rural health care providers. I mean, a lot of the these rural hospital closures we've seen over recent years in North Carolina have been on the basis of – They've got a lot of patients that walk through the door. They don't have any form of insurance. They don't have Medicaid. They're not paying, and the hospitals are stuck with the bill for treating them. So that played into the calculus to close a lot of these hospitals. We saw one in uh, Bellhaven in uh, coastal uh, Beaufort County Uh, just earlier this year in Martin County. Their hospital went out of business, shut its Mm -hmm. doors. And, of course, those are folks who now have to drive 30 or more minutes to get care. So to some extent, the delays in expanding Medicaid, there's been some damage done to the healthcare infrastructure that – Will it be too late to repair that now that these folks in these communities actually have coverage it sort of remains to be seen? North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. We're just
0: getting into it. Uh, Luciana, I want to chat for a moment about another hurdle or another arm of another uh, challenge here uh, for folks uh, who are are eligible for Medicaid, and these are non-citizens of North Carolina. You've done some reporting about this. Uh, talk to me, if you have a sense, we're using this figure of 600,000, do we have a sense of how many people uh, who are not citizens of North Carolina, but are eligible for Medicaid, are out there in our state?
2: So I, there's not like a database, as for example, on people who don't have citizenship, but There Some of the barriers that they can face are one, transportation, like you kind of already chatted about, and then a big one is language barriers. So um, a lot of information about Medicaid out there is in Spanish, but it's still, you know, probably not enough for everyone to get that information as adequately or as news outlets won't be reporting as much in Spanish, of course, or other languages. Um, Then um, that's one of the main barriers. And People also might not know that they are eligible. So, a lot of immigrants who are not citizens are actually eligible if they have, for example, a green card, if they have um, uh, refugee status, if they are asylees, um, and other scenarios. So, I think it's important to keep that in mind. And um, and yeah, that's a big factor.
0: Luciana Perez Aribe is a politics reporter at the News and Observer. Also here in studio, Jason DeBruin, health reporter at WNC, Colin Campbell. UNC Capital Bureau Chief. And yes, Sarah Kruger, investigative reporter at WRAL, is here as well. She hasn't covered Medicaid, but you will hear her voice in just a few moments here on Due South. In a moment, we will discuss uh, some recent violence at uh, area schools, UNC Chapel Hill, as well as a high school in Raleigh that uh, saw a fatal stabbing earlier this week. And later in the program, we will uh, weigh in on a couple of coaching changes. Carolina Panthers, Duke Blue Devils need a uh, new sideline sergeants in the weeks and months ahead. This is the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. We'll roll along in just a moment. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC North Carolina Friday News Roundup time. And we've got a great panel for you offering some analysis and context and making sense of another uh, busy week in North Carolina politics and news. Colin Campbell is here. Uh, he is our Capitol Bureau chief, Luciana Perez-Aribe, politics reporter at the News and Observer, Sarah Kruger, investigative reporter at WRL, and Jason DeBruin, health reporter here at WNC as well. We've been discussing Medicaid. Medicaid is uh, not Medicare. Uh, today, December 1st, Medicaid is expanded in North Carolina, now 40 states and Washington, D.C. that have expanded this federal state hybrid program for people uh, living in lower socioeconomic strata and also some people with disabilities. We're going to move on uh, from Medicaid in a moment, but I I think an important larger lens question here, Jason, is uh, other states that have not yet expanded. Southern states, Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Texas, you talked a few moments ago about the billions of dollars that helped to incentivize North Carolina to expand. Might any of those states relent? I mean, in a word, no. <laughs> it, or it, that simple. It, it seems unlikely. I
3: mean, so I did a bit of a survey asking around in South Carolina, for instance. I emailed the governor's office and just got a pretty simple response. The governor's position has not has remains unchanged or something like that. A Medicaid expansion Similar in Tennessee, similar in Alabama. It's hard to see uh, anything changing in Florida under Governor mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis. Um, and it's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, all the states you mentioned, but it's really that southeast corner. If you talk about east of Louisiana and south of Virginia, we're now the only state to have expanded Medicaid in that quadrant. So that's like eight of the 10 states mm-hmm. uh, remaining are, are really, well, as, as our show, Due South, right? I mean, that, that's our show. That's so that's it. You look, you never say never. And as we've talked about, there's, there's billions of dollars in you know, Phil Berger, who had staunchly opposed Medicaid expansion, changed his mind this year. It was it was a uh, a deal he couldn't refuse. So maybe at some
0: point um, other states will see it the same way. But I, I don't know. I don't see it in the immediate future. There's also been a pressure point. I want to note this just because we haven't. There was a pressure point that came to some Republican legislative leaders from uh, hospital executives and hospital leaders in rural parts of the state. And I think that was one pressure point that might have moved. Phil Berger. He didn't explicitly say that to me in any of the conversations we've had across the last two years. But I, I think that that has been you know, a variable in the this whole thing. Colin, let's chat a little bit about the, the political ramifications here. Uh, Medicaid, I hear I have heard lawmakers for years miss they, they're talking about Medicaid and I've heard them say Medicare. And I, I think the same thing has probably happened to you in the, the halls of the and legislature. And sometimes they don't
1: want to say Medicaid at all because they don't want to right. have the association with this federal gov- government big right. government program. They'll say Uh, Access to affordable care or something of that nature. It's it's the dirty
0: M word. How much do you anticipate this topic being? Uh, an issue in the 2024 gubernatorial race.
1: Well, what's interesting is while we've seen this change in the position of Senate Leader Phil Berger, House Speaker Tim Moore on this issue, there's still a wing of the Republican Party, including members of the legislature who voted against this. They still don't think this is a good idea. And the most prominent of those is Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. He said in an interview with me about a year ago when I was at Business North Carolina magazine uh, that he hopes that Medicaid expansion fails, that he thinks that North Carolina should come up with some other approach to health care that doesn't rely on the federal government. And, uh, Attorney General Josh Stein, who's his likely uh, Democratic opponent once we get into the general election, uh, was pumping out press releases this week, highlighting that statement, saying, you know, look, this is a choice between somebody who wants to roll back health care and Attorney General Stein, who's been advocating for Medicaid expansion since the very beginning. Mark Robinson is this fascinating figure uh,
0: that uh, seems to talk on both issues of some things. Uh, He's a relative newcomer to politics, uh, but he is the leading candidate uh, in this 2024 GOP primary. Earlier this week, Colin, you were among the reporters uh, standing in front of uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger. And I believe you were one of the uh, reporters to ask him about Mark Robinson, about his support for the lieutenant governor uh, in this primary uh, that is this upcoming. And Senator Berger doubled down unsurprisingly.
1: And I think the people of the state will decide whether or not uh, a comment made in a Facebook post or on Twitter, uh, some Decades ago, uh, and some more recent, uh, are uh, things that uh, either qualify or disqualify.
0: That's State Senate Leader Phil Berger and Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson earlier this week. Robinson, uh, as a reminder here, I think most of our listeners know this, has offered a number of spicy, if not just straight-up, discriminatory comments about uh, Jewish people. About uh, he's, he's he's offered anti um, anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. Uh, it's unsurprising uh, to hear Berger say that, but unpack it for me a little bit. What uh, what more did you glean from Berger's comments this yeah,
1: week? Yeah, you know, we, we put that to him after he said that he was endorsing Robinson. He had previously been at Robinson's campaign kickoff but said that wasn't a formal endorsement. This sort of came as a surprise. I think Luciano was there as well uh, when he was taking questions from reporters after a, a no-vote Senate floor session. And someone asked, you know, are you endorsing anyone in the governor's race? And he, he came out and said that. And then I think when we asked – uh, about his previous comments, particularly about LGBTQ folks, uh, he said, you know, I would not have said those things in that way. So he's on one level distancing himself from these comments. But I think on the other hand, recognizing that Robinson is polling well ahead of the other candidates for governor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Berger doesn't necessarily want to jump on a losing train uh, as we get closer to the primary. And so he's trying to thread the needle on this. Luciana, I'm curious,
0: what are you tuned into and interested in following as it pertains to robinson and medicaid and or other threads uh as 2024 begins to ramp up and we we look at whether or not these divisions within the republican party are going to be i don't know further entrenched or if perhaps they're going to weave things together
2: so i think it was interesting also in terms of robinson that um senate leader phil berger did not support well he didn't put his name behind trump he didn't say he did not endorse him but when we asked about that he kind of just said no um Mm -hmm. You know, he'll win the nomination regardless of my support or not. So I think there are divisions on, you know, just the scope people of um, are willing to endorse candidates and such. And then I think uh, I'll look a lot at health care because yeah. it's what I primarily focus on. Um, and I think it was interesting that this week uh, Gov Cooper, as well as uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, spoke about health care, specifically about the Affordable Care Act and some of Trump's comments um, kind of suggesting he wanted to look at alternatives to that so I think it's interesting that that's going to be a division um, continuing forward so I'll definitely follow that and then of course be on the lookout for you know candidates announcing and all that's going on
3: anything to add Jason uh, yeah I mean I, I think healthcare is always gonna be a big issue right I mean mm-hmm. you know we talked about the billions of dollars in incentives and how much we're gonna we're gonna be pulling down something like eight billion dollars in, in federal dollars to to pay for uh, health care for these now 2.6 roughly million people. It's fair to point out that that is a lot of money. And I think what some legislators will say legitimately is that healthcare is too expensive. Right? I mean, we we pay too much for healthcare. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one way to try to reduce that spend is to not have as many people covered under Medicaid. I mean, I think advocates would argue that's a wrong-headed approach or only a narrow approach. But the fact remains that pretty much everybody agrees we pay too much for healthcare, and so finding ways to lower our overall healthcare spend, I think, is is always going to be, uh, uh, you know, a top of mind
0: topic no matter what political campaign. All right, we're going to move on from Medicaid expansion uh, and. Really shift gears here. Spend a few minutes now on school violence and school safety. Uh, Sarah Kruger, WRAL investigative reporter, uh, had a very good report this week on the use of metal detectors in public schools. We'll get there in a moment. Also, some awful news out of a high school in Raleigh. First, an update on the murder of a professor who was killed on campus at UNC Chapel Hill back in August. Sarah, the assailant was ruled unfit to stand trial this week. Why?
4: Right. So there were two different mental assessments done of him by two different psychiatrists. The first one was ordered by his own defense attorneys, and we got the results of that in September. And then the second one, the results came back just this week, again, agreeing with the first one saying he is unfit to stand trial. And these two reports we learned in court, you know, they're under seal, but the judge did summarize briefly what they say. And they were pretty much in alignment talking about how Tai Chi has auditory hallucinations. One of them deemed it untreated psychosis, another likely schizophrenia, um, talking about how he would believe that people were in the room who were not and so just a really dramatic turn in this case that really thrust the whole thing into uncertainty about how this will proceed how
0: does it proceed in the short term is tai le chi in a a a mental hospital a mental facility is he under a lock and key like where is he right now
4: yeah so after this hearing during the hearing the judge said as soon as this hearing is over he will be involuntarily committed to a mental health facility at Butner Prison. And the goal of that is rehabilitation. And we've seen this in some other cases too. The goal is to get... The defendant ready for trial. That is not always a possible outcome. And so that is one possible you know, concern there as the case moves forward. But the hope is that they'll be able to rehabilitate him and then he will be able to stand trial. But that's certainly no guarantee. And in terms of the timeline, you know, we just don't know um, if we'll get an update in weeks, months. I mean, years. It's hard to say. So
0: you get to my next question here. I'm going to ask it, even though I think you might have just answered it. At what point will the mental state of Tile be revisited? Do we know? Like, is there a 90 day or six month revision period that has to take place?
4: We don't know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's he's there. He's getting this 24 hour facility treatment. And it's basically just a waiting game, which I know is probably frustrating to a lot of people who are following this case and this case impacts so many people.
0: I'm going to ask what is not intended to be a loaded question, but what might be a loaded question. If this is somebody who's suffering from psychosis and was having a, a, a psychotic bout or it, it just an internal struggle was hearing voices when they committed this act, even if they are then medicated, even if they are rehabilitated, it doesn't change the fact that they were having a, a bout of psychosis when they committed the murder.
4: Mm hmm. Square right. That for me. Yeah. So, I mean, one possible scenario here, I've talked to different attorneys asking, you know, about how this hypothetically could go. And it could be possible that he's deemed fit to ultimately stand trial, but he could then still be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Hmm. And so that's certainly a possibility. I mean, I think one thing that's been hard for some folks to reckon with is like this is a, a brilliant person who was in a very exclusive Ph.D. program, you know, had a master's degree already. Um, and so how can you perform that level of academic work, but then at the same time be deemed not mentally fit?
0: Hmm, that's heavy. Sarah Kruger is an investigative reporter at WRL. She is here uh, on our North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. That's a story that uh, obviously some unanswered questions and some uh just some things that we will continue to update on in the weeks or months or we really don't know uh, time frame ahead. Let's transition to a really uh, sad story uh, out of Southeast Raleigh Magnet School. Uh, This week, a 15-year-old high school student was killed. His name is Delvin Farrell. He was allegedly stabbed by a 14-year-old. This happened during a fight that broke out uh, in uh, a gymnasium. There was a second victim, 16 years old, uh, who was also stabbed. Uh, uh... According to multiple news outlets, uh, and is expected to survive. Let's show that photo that Delvin's mother shared with us earlier today of the boy who was killed after being stabbed in that fight in the gym in Southeast Raleigh Magnet High. Classes here at the high school canceled today. As for the 16 year old that was also stabbed in that fight yesterday, we have learned he is out of the hospital, continuing to recover. That was uh, a little bit of uh, tape, a clip from ABC 11 from earlier this week. Sarah, what more can you tell us uh, about this incident?
4: Yeah. So because the person who will face charges in this, who currently has a juvenile petition against him, Taekwon General Jr., he's only 14. And because of that, there is so much, you know, shrouded in privacy because it's still in the juvenile system. So We certainly expect to learn more as the District Attorney Lauren Freeman says she will move to transfer this case to adult court. But it's just, I don't know if you all have watched the video. Um, I, I don't recommend watching the video, but we watched it for some of our reporting. And it's just so disturbing to see just this mass of students and how many witnesses there were and thinking about all of the kids who saw this happen right in front of them and there's so much cell phone video of it from so many different angles. Um, it just, you know, it's, it's really hard as a mom, especially, to watch it. Um, and just moving forward, you know, lots of questions from parents, understandably, about how do we prevent this from happening.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't. Your, your voice starts to get a little heavy. Four of the five of us in this room have young children. I can't spend too much time on this because no one wants to hear me get emotional uh, in a radio setting. That's just it's going to be ugly radio. But more importantly, I, I mean, it, it's just it, it's really hard to talk about. Uh, you talk about safety, though, Sarah, and I want to widen the lens here on this topic a little bit. You did uh, what I thought was a fascinating uh, report on metal detectors um, earlier this week. So in the wake of this stabbing, this incident in Wake County, uh, there has been some renewed discussion calls from some to implement metal detectors in Wake County, mm-hmm. the, the largest school district in the state, one of the 20-ish largest school districts in the country. There are not metal detectors in Wake County uh, at this point. There are metal detectors in, um, in Charlotte-Mecklenburg County.
4: The state's second largest school district, Charlotte Mecklenburg, was the first in the state to install AI weapons detectors from a company called Evolve.
1: On the first day of implementation, a firearm was found through the Evolve system on the very first day.
4: The system started with just high schools and quickly noted the impact.
0: We are the, and that, that is you reporting that Sarah uh, Kruger from WRAL earlier this week in a report about metal detectors. Uh, Take it from there, reporter.
4: Yeah. So from what we found, at least seven school systems in our immediate area have some kind of either metal detectors or weapons detectors. Weapons detectors are kind of the more popular route to go now. Um, The idea being that they move a lot more quickly. And, you know, one concern with having any kind of detection is like a bottleneck situation at the front of the school. So these are supposed to move a lot faster. Um, And, you know, whenever incidents like this happen, it definitely renews news from Wake County parents and students that I hear from the question of why does Wake County school not have these? You know, by no means are these perfect. We know especially weapons detectors, they can miss a lot of knives because of their settings, the way they're set. You know, they that's just something that they don't detect too well. Um, but the idea from a lot of people is, well, this could be a deterrent to bringing any kind of weapon to school. And some of the school systems that have them in our area, one, for example, Person County Schools, Mm -hmm. I spoke with them for that story. They just got their detectors in the spring of this year and said since then they have detected zero weapons. So they believe that's a great sign that it's working, that it's deterring um and in terms of why Wake County schools doesn't have them i mean these are expensive it would probably cost by our math based on what other schools have paid about 24 25 million to get them in wake county schools um but more so than the cost what i've heard from wake county in official statements you know over the months as i've asked them about this is there was a third party security company that did a safety assessment of wake county schools mm-hmm. in 2021 and did not recommend metal or weapons detectors and i spoke to that company this week as as part of my reporting to ask them you know do you stand by that and they do they said we stand by it they believe it's just there's too much manpower that's required to operate these detectors and they just foresee you know issues like well if the detectors are set up at two doors who's what's to say that your friend couldn't just go let you in a side door So, you know, it's it's a very complicated situation. But I I know from my reporting, a lot of parents and students are hoping the Wake County School Board will reconsider and possibly get one of these detectors.
0: Build on that for me briefly. Is there traction? Is there an upcoming school board meeting or or time frame under which this might get serious consideration in Wake County or in other localities?
4: So there was just a school board meeting in Wake County and Safety was one of the topics on the agenda. But when they were talking about safety, they went to closed doors and and turned it into a closed session. So we really don't know what all was talked about. So, you know, publicly, there has been no strong sentiment of support from Wake County School Board members about this.
1: Looking more broadly at the uh, statewide, there seems to be an appetite in the legislature the last few sessions to fund uh, different safety and security uh, technological upgrades, be it panic buttons for some sort of mass shooting situation. Uh, They're willing to put money behind it and address the security and safety issues from that standpoint far more than anything to do with gun control, which Republicans in the legislature don't tackle as far as violence issues go. Mm
4: -hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's not just Wake County. Even this week, um, yesterday, a gun, a loaded gun was found at Riverside High School in Durham. And also this week, a gun found in Rocky Mount at a school. And I think, you know, it just, man, it makes parents anxious. I think a lot of us can attest to.
0: Yes, in a word. Sarah Kruger is an investigative reporter at WRAL. Uh, here as well in studio are Colin Campbell, WNC Capital Bureau Chief, Luciana Perez-Aribe, politics reporter at The News and Observer, as well as uh, Jason DeBruin, uh, our healthcare reporter here at WUNC. Coming up on the other side, we're uh, going to chat about a couple of uh, shifts uh, in college football uh, that are one- college football, one in the NFL that might have uh, indeed elicited a couple of uh, emotions from our panelists. And uh, we'll also discuss uh, North Carolina's new uh, state auditor appointed yesterday by Governor Cooper. This is Due South on WUNC. It's the Friday North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Just a quick historical note for you on this December the 1st. On this date in 1865, Shaw University, the first historically black university in the southern United States, was founded in Raleigh, North Carolina. Glad to have you along as we move through a number of topics. I'm going to pull the curtain back just ever so slightly here. During the break, we were briefly talking, uh, building on our conversation in the last segment about metal detectors uh, and uh, our, I don't know, our fracture about whether, I mean, we want our children to be safe, but it's also we've got a a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a five-year-old, a a four, almost almost five-year-old, Colin's daughter. Uh, I don't want my kids going through a metal detector but it might be a necessary thing. I don't know. Weigh in here if you want to just pick up where we were during the break. It's so tricky, right?
3: I mean, you send your kids out in the world and you assume some sort of a risk, right? I mean, we, we accept risk in our lives all the time, right? I mean, we drive cars, we fly in airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. In some ways, of course, this is terrible, but in other ways, we do not have a lot of these, right? I mean, this is the first stabbing in a school in how long? I mean, at one point, do you weigh... Every kid always walking through a metal detector and sort of living with that sort of mental pressure on them versus, yeah, of course, we don't want weapons in schools. I don't know. In some ways, it's an impossible choice, but it, I don't know. I, 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 I don't really have a good answer, I guess, because I don't want either of those things. I don't want my, my yeah, does, little girl walking through a metal detector, but I don't it, want her in the school It does school feel like sort of knives. an anxiety
1: producer of like a daily reminder that you're going to a place that might not be 100% safe, Um and it's a reality that it is not 100% safe right but it's but the it's world's still, not safe yeah. i
3: mean right i mean the world is not 100% safe yeah i mean
1: you go to the mall you go anywhere you you run some risk of of this kind of thing happening around you
4: and you know statistics show like schools are still by and large very safe and thankfully for me you know any school decisions are a few years away but i am already feeling the anxiety in ways that i never I never thought about being unsafe at school when I was in school, all through my education at various schools, including like very, very large public high school. We never went on a lockdown. We I don't even think we had lockdown drills. And the fact that this has to be normal for our kids, like I don't know if your kids at age five and you know six or whatever you said they are, are already having lockdown drills, but Oh, man, that is really. Yeah, we yeah. had
1: lockdowns and farm threats in my high school, but we always never took them that seriously. And I think that was just this at that time, it just felt societally like it was a rare thing that that would actually be real. Now I feel like you talk to high school kids. They feel like it could definitely be real any time that happens. Well, my
3: six year old told me about that. They had a they had a, a lockdown drill just a couple of weeks ago and she was telling me about it. And I mean, it just broke my heart that a that a. A first grader is having a lockdown drill, you know. So,
0: so I anticipate that sadness when it comes. My son is five and a half. He's in kindergarten. He has not had it yet. I also anticipate anger. I think that I'm gonna when he comes home and he tells me he's had that first one. I think that I'm gonna be furious on some level. I'm almost forty. I was a freshman in high school when Columbine happened. I've never been told to get under a table. I I did not have those drills. That is the reality of of this next generation of our generation of children, and it it both breaks my heart and it, it. It infuriates me.
3: Yeah. And, you know, certainly there are a lot of advocates that will be shouting at us right now saying that we have not mentioned gun control enough. And certainly I think that's part of the answer. Right. I mean, you look at other countries that have stricter gun regulations and they have this problem to a much smaller degree than we do now. Right. There are a whole lot of problems with maybe there are already too many
0: guns out there. I mean, that's not for this discussion, but I think it has to be part of the conversation. Shameless plug, but also a really interesting conversation. A couple of weeks ago here on Due South, we had a conversation with a guy named Andrew McKivitt. He's a professor at Louisiana Tech University. He wrote a book called Gun Country. It's all about America's gun culture and gun country. And it's regardless of whether you love guns or hate guns or are ambivalent to guns or whatever. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. So you can find that in our um, podcast feed on our website, um, due south I'm gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna step away from this one. We've got a handful of minutes left in in our Friday North Carolina news roundup uh, here on uh, WNC. Colin, Luciana, Sarah, and Jason are here with us. I'm gonna tick through some stories briefly. Just give me eyes. Give me a little a little something if you want to jump in on this. Otherwise, um, we're just going to keep moving through uh, and we'll see what we get to. Uh, State Auditor Beth Wood is stepping down in two weeks, as we've previously discussed here on the program. Yesterday, Governor Cooper appointed her replacement, uh, who will fill out uh, Wood's term through next year. Uh, Her name is Jessica Holmes. Uh, Jessica Holmes ran for the Department of Labor or Labor Commissioner in 2020 unsuccessfully. She was a Wake County commissioner, a black woman seen as something of a rising star uh, in uh, North Carolina politics. And I should note, contextually, a black woman has never, never sat on the North Carolina's Council of State. This is a 10-member board, the governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, so on and so forth. So um, Holmes As she fills that post, uh, becomes the first black woman to ever uh, have um, a seat on on uh, the the Council of State, which is an important note. This weekend, we are uh, one year removed from someone shooting up an electric substation in Moore County. Uh, That was. A fiasco and turned into a tragedy when thousands of residents went without power in Moore County for days, this in sub zero uh, conditions. And um, an elderly woman actually died during this last year. Colin, I'm going to call on you here. Uh, Moore County uh, law enforcement officials have not made any arrests in this case a year later. Are we close?
1: Well, they've said for a long time, oh, we've got leads, we're working this, we're working that, um, and they've not made any arrests. It doesn't seem like they're close. What really struck me this week uh, was the News Observer talked to Congressman Richard Hudson, who lives in that area. That's his district. Um, he's been advocating for you know security improvements and various other things in response to that. He said he's upset with the FBI, that he doesn't think they're taking it seriously enough uh, to investigate this and similar attacks on infrastructure around the country. So I, it's interesting. I wonder to what extent... Federal law enforcement, which is the best law enforcement we have in Mm -hmm. this country, is treating this more as a property crime versus a major national security threat, uh, which I think to some extent it very much is. Hmm. I'm going to move on. Governor Cooper scored a temporary victory in court
0: this week when a three-judge panel, two Republicans and a Democrat, issued a preliminary injunction in his favor. This is in a case uh, pertaining to a fight over separation of powers. Anything? No. OK. One more, uh, at least on this rapid fire front. UNC Chapel Hill Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz, the sole finalist for the top job at Michigan State University, remains in Chapel Hill for now. There is an interesting quote I wanted to share uh, from Guskowitz. This is per a report from The State News. That's a Michigan publication in which Guskowitz says, quote, If I were fortunate to be selected as the next president, I would only accept the role if I were given the opportunity to lead MSU without undue interference. Instead, leading in a trusted partnership with the trustees, faculty, and staff, close quote. Is that, that is some s- shade? That's yeah, <laughs> some shade. I was going to ask you it's small, medium, or heavy shade, but <laughs> that's some shade at the UNC Board of Governors,
1: right? Oh, yeah. yeah and I mean, then they've, you know, the quotes I've seen seem like they're they're happy to see him take to the door, too. So uh, maybe no love lost there as that, that particular job relationship comes to a close.
4: And I wonder what the folks in Michigan think about that, you know, given the the history at Michigan State, I don't know if that's going to fly. We'll
1: yeah, that, that might not get you a job to say, I want to call the shots, not my bosses. Due South, WNC, Friday, North Carolina News
0: Roundup. Uh, let's chat a little bit about candidate filing because it opens one week from today. We started to get some jostling this week. I'm going to start with Erin uh, Paré. She is a Republican in the state house from Wake County. She initially
1: announced she would run for Congress. Then this week, Colin, she did not about face. Why? So she mentioned financial constraints. I think some of that's the concern that uh, you're going to have some people in that primary. That's the 13th Congressional District, currently held by Democrat Wiley Nickel, uh, was a competitive seat. Now it's a lean conservative seat. So there's a bunch, I think, seven or eight different Republicans have jumped into that primary, some of them spending, particularly planning to spend uh, perhaps millions of dollars of their own uh, funding on that. Paré seemed to indicate she's not willing to put that kind of, you know, Funding of her own behind it would rather uh, look for a leadership role in the state house where she's very well liked among Republican leadership run for another term in uh, Southern Wake County. So she's taking a step back from that congressional role, uh, making it more of a wild, wide open field for who will be the 13th district uh, Republican nominee.
0: Uh, I want to move briefly from the 13th district, which has shifted, I don't know, 84 times in the last decade. I'm being hyperbolic to the 11th congressional district, which is uh, points Asheville and out way west, way west. Uh, This is the uh, Mark Meadows, Madison Cawthorn. Now, much quieter, still quite Republican, but much quieter. Congressman Chuck Edwards, he got um, an announced Potential general election challenger, but a Democrat jumped
1: into the race this week. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the candidate there. So that was a surprise. That's Representative Caleb Brudow, who's I think is his first term as an Correct. Asheville uh, Democrat in the House. He has been under the new uh, lines has a very safe Democratic seat. I think it's like eighty uh, percent votes for Democrats. Uh, so easy reelection bid for him. He's giving that up uh, to take on this uh, congressional bid in a race where uh, I think uh, I've seen some analysis that that might be our most competitive. Uh, district, but it's still heavily Republican. So it's a long shot for a Democrat uh, to take that on. So Rudow's jumping in there, uh, trying to put a big name into a race that has not attracted big names on the Democratic side for several cycles now Um, and into the void that he leaves in the state house. uh, Former state representative Brian Turner of Buncombe County is going to run for that seat and return to the house, which is interesting because he's one who dropped out saying he was kind of tired of making the four hour drive from Asheville to Raleigh only to be in the minority and not get anything done. And now he wants back in the action. I have not. I, I've known Representative Turner for years. I've been meaning to
0: talk to him or reach out to him this week uh, because he was so sick of that. Like he hated the drive. Yeah, he and was very clear about that when he decided not to run for reelection a couple years ago. Can't can't help himself but uh, to get back in the mess that that is uh, North Carolina state politics, Jason.
3: Yeah, and the reminder that what there's like, is it four or even five other state capitals that are closer if you live out.
1: Uh, Maybe not Asheville, but but like the far western. I think it might be like five, six or seven if you're way out in Cherokee County uh, where you're much closer to like Atlanta and Tennessee than to Raleigh.
3: You're even closer to Canada than you are to Raleigh, I think. (laughs) This
1: is a long state. Uh, Little geography lesson
0: here to uh, maybe pull it together if I can do this off the top of my head. When I speak with um, Chris Cooper is a good example, right? He's a professor at Western Carolina University. When he's in his office, he has pointed out he is closer to five state capitals than he is to Raleigh. He's closer to Columbia Atlanta, Montgomery, Nashville, and Maybe Louisville? Uh uh Louisville's not the capital of Kentucky. Oh, right. It's Frankfurt. Frankfurt. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, it, yeah and, that's is that, Frankfurt. and Richmond is not that much uh farther away than, than Raleigh from uh Culloway, North Carolina. So this is a big long <laughs> state for sure. Um I wanna chat briefly uh about uh the, the world of uh of football. We had some coaches coaching at changes this week.
1: Frank Reich is officially out as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. This comes as the team is dealing with one of the worst starts in franchise history.
0: What looked to be a promising season with a new head coach and the first overall pick at the helm in Bryce Young has turned out to be nothing short of a disaster. Uh, I want to I wanna, uh, give a little... Tip of the cap here to a fellow by the name of Brent Woodcox. Brent Woodcox is uh, an advisor to state Senate leader Phil Berger just to set it up, but this has nothing to do with politics. Uh, Brent said on Twitter this week, if you t- t- calling the Carolina Panthers a dumpster fire at this point is an insult to dumpster fires uh Jason you're here car- and uh, that 's fair it's like, <laughs> a totally fair statement. Uh, the Carolina Panthers are thirty and sixty three since David Tepper bought the team six years ago in the time my son has been born. And gone to kindergarten, this team has gone from pretty good, playoffs frequently, to just an utter disaster. You're a Panthers fan. Is there any glimmer of hope or optimism for you right now? So the answer to that actually is yes. Okay, good. Um, I'm in on
3: Bryce still. You do have to kind of dig through data and tweak, you know, finesse the stats a little bit. But there is reason to believe that he's a good passer, he's a good leader, and can be a good quarterback. Um you know, the, the team around, and particularly the offensive line, is is bad, right? I mean, it's really bad. And so if you're constantly having, you know, four and five uh, different 350-pound linemen in your face, it, it's hard to play quarterback. So, you know, I'm not saying that he's going to be great or anything like that, but I'm not ready to give up on him just yet. So I, there is reason for optimism. Is that going to happen this year? Absolutely not. Might it happen next year? I hope so. Of course, we traded away our first-round draft pick, uh, even to get Bryce, and then now, you're just watching C.J. Stroud do so well in Houston. These are, these are not totally fair comparisons because the, the team I, is better did around. Did I hear than... a we? Are you on payroll oh, I'm down on there? And no, no, it? come on. I'm I'm a fan. I, I'm allowed to say I. The people who, who criticize fans for saying we, I think that's just silly. I mean, of course I'm not on payroll with the team, but like that's the whole
0: point. We're in this together. I'm a fan. In it together right now constitutes one in ten. So the Panthers will look for a new coach. Frank Reich has been shown the door. In Durham... Head football coach Mike Elko has left. He walked out the door. Uh, he has been here for two seasons. He departed for Texas A&M. Uh, Sarah Kruger, you are a double Duke grad, and I gather that I am. this made you a little sad.
4: Oh, this made me really sad. I'm from Texas originally, and my mom went to Texas A&M. Small so world. I texted her in the middle of the night as he was, you know, leaving, and said, you stole our coach. And it is disappointing. You know, I feel like Duke football was really... We were doing something great. We were turning things around. There was so much confidence in Elko, and now it just it feels really demoralizing. And even, you know, my husband and I went to a lot of the games, almost every home game this year, and to think about the environment in that Notre Dame sold-out game, great game until our quarterback got injured and our season fell to pieces. But then the last game that we just went to against Pitt there was nobody there and it was it's just sad to see I think you know Duke football fans are few and far between but they were increasing and kind of require a lot to remain fans. And so now I'm worried about the traction that we'll lose.
0: It's been a nice, really nice season for the Blue Devil football team. They beat Clemson early on at home, that nationally televised game. And for a while, Duke was a doormat football-wise, right? But like David Cutcliffe came, r- r- just gave some confidence and respectability to the program, and then Elko. So I'm I'm truly fascinated to see uh, what coach, who who Duke brings in, because I think they're has been a little bit more of a desirability cultivated by some recent coaches. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be really interesting. Meanwhile, uh, Elko does go to Texas A&M. I don't know if our listeners are really going to care about this that much, but I looked it up and I wanted to share uh, that Elko is going to try to do what um, Texas A&M fans have been wanting uh, for some 84 years, which is to win a national title. Texas A&M last won a national title in 1939. Uh, Final 30 seconds or so, Sarah. I'm going to just put you uh, in a real tight time constraint here. Pompieri Pizza. A popular pizza joint in downtown Durham is closing its doors next weekend. Why?
4: Mm-hmm. Rent increase. So the I'm on their mailing list um, as just you know someone who is a customer there. They had a free birthday pizza month. If you were on their mailing list, you got a free pizza the month of your birthday. I'm not going to get my January pizza because they closed December 10th, and the owner in the email said the rent was going up 100 percent, and he said it's goodbye for now. So hopefully that's leaving the door open to finding a new space. But you know it makes you sad to think about this long time staple in downtown Durham. And who could afford that rent? You know, I mean, Durham downtown prides itself on having so many local places. Um, but you're starting to wonder, you know, is it only chains that could afford that high price?
0: The rent is too high. Sarah Kruger, investigative reporter at WRAL. Luciana Perez Aribe is politics reporter at the News and Observer. Colin Campbell is our Capital Bureau Chief at WNC, and Jason DeBruin is health reporter at WNC North Carolina Public Radio as well. Thank you all for the conversation.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Enjoyed my debut. <laughs> well, have you back, dude. This is the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South. It was produced by Aaron Kiever, Rachel McCarthy, and Stacia Brown are also our producers. Denarius Thomas is firing all those right buttons, our technical director on the other side of the glass. For Leaning to Inge, I'm Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you on Monday.